Welcome back to the Urineers Podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. And this week, we're excited to share a conversation that Cameron recently had with renowned putter maker, Scotty Cameron. And before we get into that, just a little bit of housekeeping. We are approaching a significant milestone in this project of ours in just a couple weeks. The Earn Your Edge podcast will have its first birthday. So we want to take a quick second to say thanks for listening. This has been awesome for us so far. We've, we've learned a lot. We've gotten to speak to some really cool people and more importantly, have gotten to interact with a growing audience of listeners who are aligned with similar interests and in how you're working to get better and your pursuit of excellence. So hopefully this has helped you a little bit along the way know that with a year of reps under our belt, we'll continue to try to make this better and improve. We've got a lot planned for year two and look for it to be bigger and better. And part of that is through our partnership with Titleist, who will continue to help us expand our reach and hopefully get more of the guests that you want to hear from. And they're also helping us celebrate that first birthday with a giveaway. We'll post some details on our Instagram of a team Titleist package that they have put together for one lucky winner. All you have to do is leave a review of this podcast on our iTunes page. Take a quick screenshot of that and email it over to info at altusperformance.com. In a couple weeks, we'll select a winner and Titleist will send them a, a prize package, which is kind of a, a potpourri of Titleist gear and swag. We'll post an image of it on our Instagram as well. So please take a few seconds to enter. And with that said, on to Scotty Cameron, who luckily does not really require much introduction. His name is certainly ubiquitous in the world of golf, but even I didn't really know much of the origin story. And, and Scotty and Cameron go deep into that and how Scotty Cameron, the brand, came to be. And there's some really cool stuff in there on creativity and innovation, as well as some insights from Scotty on what you should be looking at in evaluating your putter and, and how you should make sure that your gamer is the best tool for you. So thanks again for helping us get to one year. Thanks to Cordy Walker for being our guide through the process, our producer. Be sure to enter that Team Titleist giveaway. But now enjoy episode 38 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Cameron McCormick and Scotty Cameron. Now, there's no individual in the world of club design and manufacturer who's separated themselves more than our guest today, Scotty Cameron. And so with that, Scotty, the place I like to start is that nature and nurture conversation, taking it all the way back to those days in the garage with dad, tooling around and making things. Do you think that you were inclined by some kind of natural disposition to be a maker, an artisan of things? You know, my father was a perfectionist, Cam. He uh, was a two handicap insurance investigator loved the game. He was just a, a golf nut. And after work, he'd take me, uh, whether we hit balls in the park at the range or went out for three holes. But he also was a tinker. So in the garage, he set up a, a cool little workshop. He loved persimmon woods back in the day of Tommy Armour, Byron Nelson, uh, George Bear. And uh, he loved to refinish those. He gave me a zebra putter in 1974. And it was like, you know, it was like buying a kit of Ferrari. <laughs> it was new, it was innovative. I took it apart. There was washers underneath. The grip matched the head cover. The head cover matched the head. Shiny sole plate, you could mess around with it. And it was just like the first big hit over the head of the golf bug. Do you recall any of your early creations through your teenage years actually making it their way into somewhat of a science fair or a science experiment or a part of a school project? Oh, sure, sure, absolutely. And even today, uh, you know, some of those ideas are in the early days come back today. You say kind of weird science experiments. Uh, the, remember the trillion putter, the toddler one with, and I have the white dots in the back? Long story short, those white dots were actually silicone. And I was working on a car when I was much younger, 16, 17. I'm a car guy. And uh, the putting in a new muffler and they had rubber straps to hold it on. I thought, well, that's cheap. That's not very going to hold it on very long. So I put in, took out, milled a piece of uh, steel instead of the rubber because I thought the rubber would, you know, shake around. Come to find out uh, a reason why is when you turn it on, the vibration from the engine traveled into the compartment of the car where rubber would kill the vibration. This made it so bad. It was like automatic when I turned the car on. No wonder it's rubber. <laughs> so it's one of those aha moments of, okay, later on in life, how do I take that rubber? How 
severe that was, how do I take it and add rubber and vibration dampening to a putter? So in 97, I had worked with a few chemical companies to create something where the pro or the sales rep could walk into the pro and say, hey, stick this tea in the back, it's rubberized. And the reason for this is a vibration dampening membrane simply said, it's in the back of the insert, simply to make the putter feel softer, sound softer, feel better. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, that was actually silicone and it was a vibration dampening membrane. But that's a bit of a science experiment of, I tried all the glues, I tried all the epoxies, I tried everything and something as simple as a science experiment with silicone. It's amazing what you can discover when you look in analogous markets, whether it be by maybe some accident when accident when you were tinkering with your car or when you when you do it on purpose. And I hope to unpack a little bit more of that spirit of innovation and where you get your further ideas from. But before we get there, there was one thing I read, one of dad's lasting piece of, uh, pieces of advice to you. In fact, one of the last pieces of advice he gave you, correct me if I'm wrong, is stick with the game of golf, Scotty. I think you have a future. And the question that comes out of that is from that question or from that statement, how the game of golf and specifically design and manufacture of putters grew into being your life purpose. Mm. Well, i a good junior golfer, not great, good. And, you know, as we all do when we're young, we think we have enough talent to be a great player. And, uh, again, I always struggled. I'm a pretty good ball striker, but struggled in the early days. I had so many questions about putting. Mm -hmm. Why did I putt poorly? But I was making putters at that time. And uh, I played baseball mostly in, in uh, grade school. And when I got into high school, my uh, father died on my, it was a summertime uh, before I was a freshman, he passed. And uh, he says, you know, you might have to because the baseball swing kind of messed up the golf swing. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have to choose what you're going to do. And that was a, so I did try to play golf, but found if I'm not going to starve to death, I better get a job. <laughs> Economics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I better, I better get to work. But I just love the game so much, and I wanted to do something in that. And I was actually making putters uh, not only for myself. And I found when I got a new putter, I was excited, and I putted quite well. But I'd give those putters away to friends on um, the mini tours on the West Coast, and uh, they would putt well. But, yeah, it I wish I could have been a, I love the game, but it's funny how I found manufacturing. It all came from my father teaching me rights and wrongs and craftsmanship. Third year of college, I tried to play golf, tried to go to school, tried to survive, and finally decided, you know, this putter thing, I was contacted by many companies uh, because I was just making my garage and these mini tour guys would, you know, be playing with them. And I was contacted by companies, hey, um, you design putters. And I said, I don't know about, I make putters. I try to design. And I early on sold some designs until finally I started milling putters and small runs by hand. But then later when Bernhard Langer, 93, won the Masters, people really noticed and things took off. Now a quick word from our friends at Titleist. How fast are the new Titleist TS medals? Faster than you think. You may think you are happy with what you have, but no matter what you're currently playing, you owe it to yourself to hit the new TS lineup. See what it feels like to swing a driver built with speed and every detail. You have nothing to lose, only distance to gain. Find your nearest Titleist fitting opportunity by visiting Titleist.com. And our friends at Titleist are also helping us celebrate our one-year anniversary that's coming up next month. So stay tuned for details on a giveaway that will be running soon on Instagram. And now back to the podcast. I want to understand how you view and manage risk. In 1992, you break away, you break away out on your own and you start your own company with the goal of making the finest putters for the best players in the world. Number one, did you view that as a risk? And if so, how did you manage that risk? Sure. At that time, uh, the year prior, I was working for Ray Cook Golf Company. 
wonderful putter in the day and a gentleman uh, who bought the company really didn't know much about putters. It was, uh, he lived in Texas. His banker said that Ray Cook company was coming for sale. His wife had an inheritance. He bought the company and really didn't know much. He knew sales. I was found and hired by him, not only to design putters for the Ray Cook company, but to put them back on the map. But also I trained the salespeople what I made and what was good about it so I kind of was the jack of all trades and I would take the putters out to the tour and meet people like David Frost and Jadon Blakes and Andy Beans and Lanny Watkins of showing what I was making for this little putter company because they all knew Ray Cook Company. So I kind of had an open door and the new stuff, they had a say, they would tell me what they thought and it was one of the best learning curves ever until the owner of that company said, you know, we're getting into putters that are so expensive, we can't sell them because I loved milled blocks of steel. It was the purest. And I did a putter from called the Blue Goose. And uh, it was expensive. And uh, he says, you know what? I want to focus on Walmart, Kmart, service merchandise, and Big Five. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not into that market. I want to go for the highest end, and he wanted to go for mm -hmm. that marketplace. Not that it's bad. It's just not the marketplace I wanted to go after. So we split uh, after, I, I'm going to say, a couple years or 18 months of, of hard work. I was disappointed, but I was driven. And young, just had gotten married uh, in maybe, uh, I should know that, 88, and uh, – I said, you know, I'm going to, the goal was to create a company to make the finest putters in the world for the best players. That's, it really wasn't about price. So I started making these putters that I was making in the garage and took them around to a few people and a few friends that knew that I did stuff for Ray Cook. And there were a few that said, son, at that price, you'll be out of business in six months. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, did any part of you believe them or did, did most, did, did hundred percent of you say, no, no, I'll show you. <laughs> it was a bit of, I'll show you, but I felt like then I had to hit the streets and like I was preaching the gospel of milled putters and why it was better than a cast putter and porosity and, and using a pure form, but it was expensive. And honestly, I had friends in Japan that I'd met in the golf business and I sent a few of these putters overseas and really my market for my name brand started in Japan first. We started, my wife was a pharmaceutical technician in a hospital. I had a dream. I said, I want to start my own company and we didn't have much money. And uh, she thought I was crazy. She quit her job and we were in a little warehouse and uh, we thought we hit it big cam when we bought a fax machine and we thought we went international. <laughs> <laughs> it's the little things. <laughs> big time. And uh, yeah, that was big time. So I could interact overseas via fax. Right. And uh, we put in new furniture. I spent the weekend painting this little messy little office. It was terrible. We shared a, a shared restroom and we went for it. We absolutely went for it. And I had gone back to a few people that I'd met at uh, Ray Cook and they had left and I brought them on. Guys in the back that were great grinders. There's one, uh, his last name was Gonzalez, but he was very fast. So his nickname was Speedy Gonzalez. <laughs> Just an absolute craftsman. So I would mill, and I wasn't a good mill guy either, um, self-taught, but I was a great as a grinder shaper because I could feather out and hide a lot of the bad milling and feather that out through hand finishing. Mm -hmm. What a learning curve. I knew it was bad, Cam, when my wife would come and, and what was good at the time was Campbell's soup. And she says, we're down to ramen. So then I would have to get on and make some phone calls, send some facts, and try to collect the money. Mm -hmm. That was a tough part. I, I'm not into that. Uh, you know, I would buy, I would sell. I was my tour rep. I was my design guy. I was the educator of, it was tough. And then 1993 comes 
and Bernard wins the Masters with a putter. How did you get the putter in Bernard's hands? Was he auditioning a variety of your tools before that? Um, no, I was, uh, I believe it was a week before. Nope, it was two weeks before. It went uh, Bay Hill. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the key players came from overseas. It started to be a big event for, you know, all the international guys were warming up before the Masters. So they played Bay Hill, TPC, then the Masters. So I went out to Bay Hill with a handful of putters, begging for guys to use the putter, begging. <laughs> what did that sound like? Give me your proposition right now. I'm, I'm one of the prominent players at the time in 1993, and you're begging me. <laughs> You should ask that story to Peter Jacobson because he was one and he tells his story like uh, Mr. Jacobson. I'm Scotty Cameron. I make a fully milled putter. Um, all I ask is you give it one try. That's all. One try. And uh, let me know what you think. So I'm on the putting green. He hits it. Kind of intrigued with it. Asked a few questions. Talked about there's no porosity. There's no pinholes. The sound, the feel, the strength, the precision milled. I got lucky with a couple of guys, and one like that was Bernhard at Bay Hill. But what he was intrigued with, I talked Loft, because I had known Loft. If you read all the magazine, Carson Solheim, it was just one of the greatest inventors ever. I was just huge. I thought he hung the moon. I read every brochure, every interview ever did, but I talked Loft because of, I thought, well, wait a minute, the ball sits in the grass, we need to get out of the grass. Well, does the ball sit on the grass or in the grass? Do you need loft? Does loft backspin? Don't we want forward spin? So I had all these questions that I started researching and loft was our friend. But Bernhard, if you remember, Cam, he went to that forward uh, kind mm-hmm. of an arm lock. Arm lock, right. And he uh, was working with that, but he had a putter that he didn't mess around with a loft. And I'm standing back watching this ball dig into the ground and hop. Mm-hmm. And I walked up and I said, Bernard, I'm name's Scotty Cameron. I'm putter maker. And, and I see that you have a major forward press and there's some loft issues. And he goes, yes. Cause he knew, he knew there was issues. And, uh, I said, the way you're going about that, it's great, but you're going to need more loft on the putter. And we can either mill it in the face or bend it into the neck. And I caught his attention because he knew Mm -hmm. he needed more loft. But at the time, there wasn't really a person there to to really know what to do. And he had a major forward press. So uh, I said, well, you're grabbing onto the shaft and it's got to be uncomfortable. We can lengthen that grip. He goes, well how would you lengthen it? I said, well, I can do that. I said, you're going to need loft. I'm guesstimating that you're going to need about four degrees more loft. Okay. And I said, I have a putter here. I will, uh, it looked a little similar to his answer. Of course, it was a classic one. I said, let me go on the trailer. And, uh, the trailer I used was true temper because I bought their shafts and they allowed me to use their tools Remind me, there's a story there um, of being young mm-hmm. and uh, went in and I took two of the grips that I was using. I cut one, cut the other, and I spliced them together and I made a grip that was longer. But the rules that the, still are, they ha- it can't be a waste in the grip. It has to be perfectly smooth. So I uh, took two grips, put them together, and they weren't a perfect blend. So I took sandpaper and sanded down the grip so it was smooth, so you couldn't see the ugly hack marks. I uh, took black electrical tape and wrapped the midsection of the grind marks, Mm -hmm. blended it all down, went in to see the USGA to say, "Um, I've just done this, want to confirm before I give it to Bernhard that you guys are cool with this, absolutely. Gave it to Bernhard, but I had a loft and lie machine that I traveled with, and I, and I bent the neck forward, ran out to him, and I said, well, hold on, you can't set it down normal because it's going to close. Because I bent the shaft forward, mm-hmm. but if you set it down normal, it's going to close. So I said, set it down the way you're going to use it, because if you set it down normal, it's going to be deadly hooked, and that's a negative reaction. So I didn't want that reaction to be first. Mm-hmm. So uh, he sets it down, 
And he looked at me like, looked at me, no way. So to watch him to go do that in about 20 minutes and come back to sick and what he was thinking that he needed, I was the guy to be there to help him. Yeah. He put it in play. I believe you can go back to the record books. He finished second TPC. I would stay out for TPC and, uh, you know, I'm a, I couldn't afford to fly home. I couldn't afford to go back and forth. So I stayed out through the masters. I could not afford to go home. And, uh, I saw him at TPC and it was working fantastic. I watched him. I changed a bit of the loft, took a bit out, maybe at, uh, less forward press at that time. And I didn't have cameras. I didn't, it was more of a feel, but I caught his attention by just simply kind of knowing what I was talking about and what he was going through. And, uh, he played very, I think he took a second or third. And then the masters comes my first masters. And, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Casey, Casey was caddying for either fuzzy or Freddie couples. Anyhow, I befriended him traveling the tour and, uh, he gave me a ticket. I had my bag that I traveled with and, uh, I had putters. I went in and, uh, my wife was coming in town, flying in town. I picked her up. There's a long story about that. Bernhard Langer played with it. Come Saturday, he's leading the masters. Okay. So we're young business owners. We have everything to, to, uh, risk. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we have one of our putters leading the masters and there may have been two or three in play and that was pretty good right. for just starting. I think I had a Craig Stadler at the time and, and, uh, anyhow, Saturday, the masters, I, I didn't can't. sleep <laughs> oh, zero. I couldn't sleep. We woke up, we went out, enjoyed it on the tee, Bernhard Lang on Sunday with Chip Beck. We go down one, he uh, pars, go down two, he bogeys. And we get all nervous. We're going to jinx him. We're gonna, we shouldn't be here. You think like me. <laughs> so honestly, we were so nervous. We left the golf course. We didn't want to jinx him. We ended up at in a department store at Sears. Of course, I go right to the TV section. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting on a box of TVs watching this little TV and uh, watching. And we had lunch. We're nervous. We go back to watch it on the little TV. Bernhard Eagles, 15, 15. Chip back laid up. Eagles. My wife says, we got to get back to the golf course. <laughs> Book it. Get out of Sears. We hop in the rental car. We still had our tickets. We got back in. We got down to 17 by the time we got there and through and down. And he had, I don't remember, two or three shot lead. And we started to almost cry with joy of, oh my gosh, this is what we dreamed for. Yeah, and we uh, had the name down the back of the neck in gold. I had the name and the face in gold. And that really, I think I was the first to put my name on the putter because I couldn't afford advertising and I just hoped for a worm cam. Right. And we got the worm cam. And after that tournament, there are a lot of other putter companies that put their names visibly that you could see it for the worm cam. Sure. I got lucky. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. A Kushnet comes calling. And while you align it, it's, it's a stretch to say that I would consider him a mentor, but the time, the couple of times I've spent, whether it's a lunch conversation or phone conversation, every time I've spent with him, I pick up a fantastic 
volume of wisdom, um, even if I'm in an audience listening to him speak. So an amazing man, and he comes courting, and a Kushnet comes courting. Uh, how how would you describe that process, and and how impactful that was for you, given that you were starting to see such success? Yes, Cam. Um... Wally, you know, I can tell that you've chatted with Wally because when I, if you're privileged enough to get a chat with Wally Uline, but my head is spinning because he, you know, he's, he's talking so many different ways and I get done with a conversation with, and I'm trying to remember what did he say about that? What did he say about that? And I'm trying to remember because it was, uh, crazy. Uh, it's one of those guys when he speaks, people listen. I do. You're right on track with that. But um, so in 93, had the win and we went into production and we couldn't keep up and, and nor did we really need to or want to because it was a handcrafted product. Uh, it wasn't about making the most. It was about making the best. So that was uh, 93. I got a lot of pros asking for putters. I got one from a very nice gentleman that I worked with at Ray Cook, who did some putter design for Ray Cook, Peter Costas. Peter Costas called me. He used a short 32-inch putter. He wanted a heavier putter. I made him a putter three weeks later and sent it to him, and he loved it. Ended up like on the cover of Golf Magazine of Peter Costas giving putting tips, but there was that Cameron putter in his hand, and people noticed. Mm -hmm. And uh, Peter Costas and Wally Uline from Tideless were dear friends. I'd had no idea. I am at TPC the year later in 94. Peter, my friend, says, hey, I love the putter, blah, blah, blah. Got a phone call from a buddy of mine, Wally Uline. And uh, they're looking for a putter maker. They're trying to replace John Reuter, who passed away. He is a bullseye guy. So mm -hmm. bullseyes. I've collected bullseye since I was a kid. Some of the great ones, there's great stories and history about bullseye putters, but a big fan. I said, well, Peter, I, uh, you know, I just started my little company. We're going great. We have three employees. I got a fax machine. <laughs> and, uh, but thank you. And uh, he goes, Scotty. Trust me, you want to meet this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I trusted Peter. And I said, okay, here's my number. Have him give me a call. So I, uh, that was the last day I flew home. I flew home because I could finally afford it. Right? I could. <laughs> Barely, but I could. Flew home. I get a call uh, in the morning from Wally Uline. He says, uh, Peter Koss gave me your card. We're looking for a putter maker, and Peter recommended you highly. Where are you going to be tomorrow? And I said, here, I have, I'm just working on putters. And he goes, well, I'll meet you. Do you know where La Costa Resort is? Sure. Met at La Costa Resort. I had been to La Costa Resort when I first PGA event, 13 years old in high school. We made a road trip from Huntington Beach. We went to La Costa for Tournament of Champions. 13 years old, and I thought this was the greatest place in the world. It was spectacular. La Costa Resort, the ocean. Anyhow, uh, Wally says, uh, I'll meet you there in the morning, breakfast 8.30. Great to see you there. Not knowing he's going to hop on a plane, he was in Boston. Mm -hmm. I meet him at 8.30, and he had a folder on me of about three inches thick. It's amazing. <laughs> the guy is so thick. Thorough. He investigate. He knows. He studies. We went and had breakfast on the lawn, which overlooked the putting green. And this is, I'm older now, but I remember the feel of La Costa when I was a kid at 13. And we're sitting in the back. I'm looking over La Costa in awe. And it was like, I'm, I'm just talking to an old friend. He loves cars. He loves golf. He loves classic clubs. Breakfast turns into four and a half hours through lunch and uh, just talking to a friend about classic clubs and stuff. I said, I feel like I was preaching the gospel. I'd been to Japan. I did interviews, Tommy Nakajima, 
starts pulling out all the stuff like he's been stalking me. <laughs> you didn't know it to that point, did you? It's you had just, a stalker. <laughs> she was just very, very thorough. And I was impressed that this guy took the time to learn about me. I knew it was serious. Simply said, Wally, thank you for uh, lunch, thank you for breakfast and lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give thoughts. I'll talk to my wife. But we got a good thing going on. We just got a new fax machine. <laughs> and uh, I'll talk to her. He calls me in three days and says, hey, what Kathy had to say my wife, he remembered her name. I simply chatted with him and said, you know, we have a great thing going on. He goes, hey, what don't you like to do about your new little company? And I said, I don't like to call people and ask for the money. I don't like to bill collect. It's I don't like it. I like to create. I don't like to fix machinery. Mm-hmm. Uh, when my machinery breaks, I'm the guy that has to fix it. I don't like this. I don't like that. He goes, okay, think about this. You never have to do any of that again. You do what you're good at. You do what you like, and we'll take care of the rest. That was pretty big. Yeah. So three months goes on. He calls about every three weeks, and we chit-chat for briefly. Thank you, Wally. Thank you, Wally. So I got a call. He's coming into town, into L.A. He says, hey, uh, I'm going to be in Irvine. I said, know where Irvine is. He goes, right off the freeway, Jamboree, let's meet for lunch. But here's a sneaky part. He says, bring your wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he and, said check at that point, didn't he? Oh, <laughs> or checkmate. <laughs> so my wife's like, Scotty, you know, okay, I'll come. But I don't want to sell. I don't want to merge. We have a good thing going on, but I'll come. So two and a half hours over lunch, she saw what I saw in Wally Uline, and uh, we got in the car, we're driving back south, and she goes, I think we need to merge with this guy. I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, I think he's the real deal. I think he's sincere. I think he's, he gets you, you get him. Next day I called Wally and I said, okay, let's talk. We're in, but there's things I don't want to do. Um, There's things that I need. There's things that I want. How can we make this happen? Let's talk. And so from that point on, after he closed my wife, it has been a a marriage with a, a corporation. But simply that day, I said I would do something. He said he would do something. This year, 25 years later, it's the same goal. Create the best putters in the world for the best players in the world. When I wake up on Monday, that's my goal. And Wally took care of the rest. My wife is happy. We sold the fax machine. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to a question on design philosophy, your inspiration your muse, so to speak, if you had to pinpoint your main sources of inspiration that allow you to do what you do on such a regular basis, turning out masterful design after masterful, masterful design, what would they be if you had to pinpoint one or two and why? I know you already mentioned um, uh, your passion for uh, vintage cars. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm a golfer. And at that time when I was, uh, Carson Solheim was great. So I'd read everything that he had to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I was inspired by his stuff, but in the early days of the Ray Cook stuff, heel and toe weighting that were in a mallets were one of the first patents for heel and toe weighting, but it was in a mallet where Carson took it and created the bumps in the pocket to create the heel and toe weights. Inspiration in those days, you know, for example, when I would put my name, stamp my name on a putter, I didn't want it to be just white paint. I always was intrigued with how can we make it look cooler? And, um, for example, I got into, uh, my father is a car guy. Also, we went to a lot of car shows, candy, apple paint and lacquer paints. And it was a red paint is solid, but if it's a translucent paint, it looks like you could reach in. It was just something cool about it. Um, so things inspired me from car shows, exhaust that we talk about even today, a lot of things come from everyday things. You know, like the wings on the back of the new Phantom putter that we do. If we go back a few years, I had big, hefty weights in the back. And uh, they were cumbersome looking, 
but it was very solid and rugged looking. It was industrial. And the new weights, um, I had heard from enough pros punching me in the nose saying, those weights are kind of, it looks like Mickey Mouse back then. <laughs> so when I did the new uh, Phantom Putters, I had a new car came out and they had it had a big wing on the back. And I was lucky enough to buy the car and I just took my breath away. And it had uh, almost these yellow fluorescent brake calipers, yellow fluorescent lines on the new Phantom Putter, had the wing on the back. So I wanted to incorporate something fast and sleek. So this car had a wing on the back and it was, I didn't want that kind of wing, but I wanted it as sleek, fast and cool as that car put into a putter that just melted. And, and it was inspired by a lot of different things, but the, the car inspired me the most. And, you know, putters and low profile. So creating the putters like the Futura was one of the great early futuristic designs, but then getting beat up about, hey, this is a little this, this is cumbersome, it doesn't set that great, it doesn't sound that good, the big weight's off the back, and just taking notes on that when it came time to do something new, take all those notes of what I learned and what pros said, and put it into the next design of sound and feel, looks, weights, performance, and this new uh, Phantom, I am so thrilled with, and it's really not really Cameron looking either, I wanted something out of the box, and uh, this one is out of the box in a great way. And maybe that blends nicely into the next question on innovation, which you've clearly done um, umpteen times over. And it's kind of like I call it a pimp my ride discussion. If all the constraints, if all the shackles were taken off, is there anything that you dream about doing that you'd bring to life? And this is coming from a place of not really knowing what constraints that you might be under in terms of materials, in terms of, well, I clearly know the USGA rules, but I'll, I'll open it up to you. Is there anything that you dream up that you'd love to come to life if those constraints were pulled off? Yeah, you dr I dream about... Uh... Could you have a tripod effect and pull a hammer back, stand behind the ball, and have a tripod? I dream about putting between your legs so I can face the visual like this instead of looking down the line like this, mm -hmm. which makes it really tough because we live like this and we putt like this. So could we putt between our legs and visually see the hole better? but there's USGA restraints mm -hmm. on those things for a reason. So I try not to get too excited about, I think I could design better putters where people make more putts, but the USGA governs the game to make it fun, safe, and to continue the heritage of the game. Because if we could now put off a tripod and a hammer, it wouldn't be the same game. Sure. Therefore, how do you compare the past and the future? I believe in the rules. I think the rules are correct, and the USGA is right on track, but sometimes they drive me crazy. <laughs> but all in all, I think they're great for the game and great, but I want to do things like we're saying, and they don't let me do it, and it drives me nuts. You had mentioned something earlier that your, in your pitch to Bernhard, it was something that you knew he needed. You weren't just a fixer. You, quite frankly, were salvation to him. And I'm not too sure that, well, our listeners probably at about an 8 of, out of 10 ratio or rate uh, would be golfers or fans of golf. And so they're probably quite familiar with um, the skills in golf. And then two out of 10 may not be. So for the two out of 10 that may not be, they can um, just follow along and, and maybe we're going to convince them to play golf at some point during this podcast. But nonetheless, what I'm getting at is a question. And that question is a discussion on ball roll, a discussion on roll speed and roll quality and the importance of that. Can you give us a window into your knowledge, your experience, your insight as it relates to those things that you essentially pitch Bernhard on? Sure. I have these thoughts and I have these theories and I'm a big believer and everybody has theories, you know, but you got to prove it into fact being a theorem. I had all these things I needed to answer in my mind so I could go after key players and tell them facts, not my theories. Mm -hmm. And that was where Wally came in big time. I was in a they actually put me in an office for three days and I'm not an office guy. I 
I'm a tinker. I'm in the back. And uh, I wanted to see high-speed video. I wanted to see truly what the ball did off of the putter. But that means nothing until you look at the player. And some of these things, uh, learning, you know, when you uh, have a computer on the ground and you're looking at a stick 3D ball and a stick putter that's not really your putter, your ball, and they don't even show you your body or your setup or your arms or your grip or, or anything. Mm-hmm. And it'll say uh, at address, you're three degrees right and at impact, you're, you know, whatever. Well, your first deal is, well, I got to close it down. But hang on, if you don't look at your body, because the body of the, the person affects the putter, the putter affects the ball. And if you're not, if you're looking at a computer screen, I don't think you're getting all the facts. So sometimes be careful on some of these things because it can give you false reads or mm. add more questions. Sure. So the goal there was, Cam, was uh, does the ball roll? Does the ball skid? And uh, I set up in my garage and learned about high-speed video. And I was looking for a person to uh, write a program that I could as I took the putter away, it would start the camera at impact. It would show me what the ball's doing and give me a shaft angle at it. So at address and at impact. So if I have a forward press, does that mean at impact it continues or does the putter catch up? I had this conversation on tour with Gene Sowers and this really intrigued me. I couldn't answer it, but I needed to go find the answer. Great guy. So I couldn't wing it out there. I needed the facts. Wally uh, said, okay, I like where you're going here. What do you need? I said, I need X amount. I need a budget. That's what I'm up to. Year later, I had worked with uh, a few different companies and simply it wasn't easy. And it was as simple. I worked with great camera companies and so on and great names. And I got a friend of mine, uh, Dave Phillips. Do you know Dave? Of course. Well, yeah. TPI. He was doing a lot of stuff for David Ledbetter, and they were really the first guys on the full swing to do video work. And Dave was really good at it. And uh, I had a friend, Adrian Wadey, out of Lake Nona, and uh, called uh, uh, my friend. He put me in touch with Dave Phillips, who was really kind of a pioneer of great video on golf swings. Sure. Talked with him, wonderful gentleman. I said, this is what I'm looking for. I said, uh, you do this on the full swing, and uh, can you help me? So when I was out in Florida next, I looked him up. We had lunch, told him what I was looking for. He goes, well, you're looking for high-speed video, and I work with normal video, but you're looking for different things than I do. But I met a guy at, I'll think of it, and uh, he writes programs So when you make a a call and it has to be transferred from this state to this state through this operator, he wrote this deal where he could transfer this and it was a computer genius, sold his company, 34 years old. And he says, contact this guy because he's into that. He could, when you pull it away, it would start. When you come back, it could register. And so I called this gentleman and couldn't be any nicer, golfing nut, sold the company, well-to-do. So this is what I'm up to. I haven't found anybody to do it. They act like they get it, but it's not giving me what I need to see. It's no problem. He goes, uh, I'll fly out, see what you're up to. So I pick him up at the airport a few weeks later. And I've been working on this for about a year and a half. I had uh, been into a building that was long and I wanted, I just had this vision about this putting robot mm-hmm. to hit putts and people. I was in my garage at the time. I needed to get out of the garage because all these touring pros were coming to my garage, <laughs> like uh, Freddie Couples, Davis Love, Jim Furyk, VJ Singh. And my wife, we're working in the garage. It's 11 o'clock at night. And she goes, you got to get out of the garage. <laughs> so uh, I got this little space and uh, this guy comes in. And I've been working on this for a year and a half, and I haven't gotten what I've seen. This guy picked up, bring him to the, this little hoe. It was rinky-dink shop, but I had a vision. Brought him in, and uh, he goes, give me 45 minutes. I think, what can you do in 45? Sure, absolutely. So I had cameras. I had thoughts. He plugs it in. He puts it. He aligns it. He sets it up. And exactly what I envisioned, 
this guy does in 45 minutes and oh I've been my. working a year and a half. The light goes off. I'm just, you know, heart's beating. This was so cool for me because I, I knew it could be done. I just, it got done. And I look at the guy and I said, what do I owe you? He says, I do need a set of irons. I need a <laughs> golf bag. Hook me up with a set of golf clubs. We're good. <laughs> I got lucky. Um, and Dave Phillips became a dear friend. And this guy still gets Christmas cards. And uh, so I had this hodunky place. I had this camera system. I had to build the trussing to get the cameras, to get the high speed lighting. It'd be super bright. Wally's in town. He wanted to meet up. Hey, what are you working? What are you doing? Meet up with Wally. He's a lefty. I was prepared for that. And uh, set up. He had putts, start, stop, start, stop, the, the lights, the cameras. He looks at me and he goes, we have a patent on this yet? I said, not yet. He says, don't show it to another until we have a patent. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. So I knew I was on track. And Wally was always willing to fund projects, even though they were dreams. Mm -hmm. If you're moving forward, he uh, just wonderfully would um, fund, and not a lot, but he would fund the research to do things better. So he was always, he was, of course, my boss, but he was always a friend. He got it. Mm -hmm. He knew from a golfing standpoint, he was just wonderful. Yeah. So high-speed video, now on the body, and I call the art of putting cam, is the, uh, simply said, it's how... The ball is affected by the putter, but the person, the body affects the putter, which affects the ball. So three things I was really intrigued. How the body was set up and the eyes and the, and the length and affect, the body affects the putter and the putter affects the ball. And if I could find what the body was doing, I could design putters to make the ball do what it's supposed to do. And that was still intriguing about the ball it's supposed to do. So the ball weighed X amount. It sat into the grass, and I needed to get it out because if I didn't have any loft, it hit the edge of the indentation and hopped. So then I experimented with one degree, two degree, three degree, four degree of loft. But when the shaft was at 90, I found that four degrees, three and a half to four degrees was optimum. But at impact, if you continue to forward press, What's the forward press? Then I would need to add the loft to the putter. And I'm one to think, well, why? I don't want loft. I don't want the ball to launch. But you got to dig it out of the indentation. And it's not my theory anymore where I was getting out earlier. It's not my theory anymore. It's a fact. Loft is good for you. But the key in a putter design is to hide the loft that it doesn't look like a chipper sure, before sure. you press it to hide it. So those were key times of... What does a ball do? What does a putter need to be? But that's all relative. What does a person do to the putter to get the ball in the hole? And I remember Wally was a big fan. We had just signed David Duvall. And David Duvall, good start, but he uh, struggling with putting. And uh, Wally said to David, go see Scott. He's working on some cool stuff. And I think it could be enlightening, not help you, be enlightening to help answer some of the things you're thinking. And he came in, and he was great. He was young, a lot of confidence. And uh, we worked an hour and a half. We were going to go to lunch. I said, so what do you think? He goes, you know what? I'm not half as screwed up as I thought I was. <laughs> Sometimes that's what they need, right? <laughs> it's, oh, absolutely. Answer those questions. It looked quite good, but until he saw it in high speed, it answered questions. We had pizza for lunch. I remember the place. I remember the time. He had Mitch's caddy. We had pizza, and he went out to the next event and won. Hmm. Confidence goes a long way. Answering questions. This putting thing is crazy. It's intriguing. But if you can find a bit of light, and you like the putter you're using, and we've answered questions, where's a ball position? When it's that far up, shaft comes back, face gets closed. Too far back? Shaft comes forward, face gets open. Where's optimum ball position? No two are alike. So should everybody be set up in their left heel? Well, that's where it seems to be the best, left heel, left instep. But do you have to? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Everybody's different. So it was simply the studio was a huge, and I could not have done that without 
while you line and Tidelist, I had dreams and they were able to make allow a kid with a dream and a kid with a drive to learn to see. And uh, again, I'm here and I wake up every Monday. What's next? Can we go back about 60 seconds? You started into a discussion about differences, differentiators, but I want to unpack similarities then. You mentioned earlier as well, key players, you can't wing it, you need the facts. And in my experience, it would echo that sentiment that the the best players in the world are discerning to levels that are unfathomable to the average mere mortal. Uh, They have this set of superpowers that allows them to um, discern fractions of millimeters and fractions of degrees. And inside this podcast, every conversation we're having, we're looking for the uniqueness, the, the, the things that we'll, we'll quote or define as edge-earning actions. What similarities have you seen, let's say, between Faxon and Tiger, two of the greatest putters of all time, who you've worked both extensively with? Yeah, um, Faxon, um, I told him about this high-speed video. I had these thoughts, and he was intrigued. I... Uh, Ran into Faxon at the PGA show this year in January, and I did not know this. And he had a scribbled piece of paper, and it was uh, his stats when he was on tour for, I don't know, 25 years. And uh, he was like 34th in putting. Then he had the scribble note of Ben Crenshaw, and he had been under his wing of Ben Crenshaw putting putting coach he went from 34th to 12th and he really was intrigued with putting and he got really good and he loved his time with crenshaw and i told him what i was up to and i was going to open this little industrial unit and at the time i had no name it was called scotty's garage till a marketing guy at tyler says well that's not very cool so he came up with the putter studio so uh faxon came in blown away because he was the thinker and he needed to see to understand he had these thoughts he knew but he needed to see mm-hmm. so he came in we worked together for three hours and he was just intrigued and uh he leaves there within months he became number one and this is on this chicken scratch piece of paper yeah and it goes his own ben crenshaw Scotty Cameron. Mm -hmm. And at the time we met, he was number one to number three for nine straight years. He mapped that influence, didn't he? He just, you know, and he said, I mean, this is years later, he came and said, thank you. Here, I want to give you a copy of these stats. And I got chills because for me to be on the same list with Crenshaw, I mean, General Ben is the best, (laughs) isn't he? I had dreams. I had thoughts. I had theories. I was intrigued. I shared with a friend, Faxon, which was looking for the same thoughts. And after that happened in the early days, working with him and learning so much, I would rely on those guys for knowledge. I would ask my questions and they would ask me. So, you know, like Tiger would come in and he had unbelievable feel visual. I remember we talked about a wedge and it was called a bandit wedge and it was a dot punch face. We both came from Orange County and we talked about clubs and he used this and used, oh, I had that. And and uh, he came in and I remember him saying, you know, I was getting this from this guy and I she didn't show this. And he goes, if you ever do that, I'll never come back. Yeah. Kind of intriguing. And uh, so he knew what he wanted. And for example, I'd, I'd put a dot in his top of his putter. And uh, when I'd make him a backup, who looks at the depth of a dot? Who really cares? Mm-hmm. I'd put red machinist ink in it. And uh, he'd look at the putter, like certain things. And he'd look at the dot and he goes, how come the dot is not as deep as the last one? And I'm a little bit like, what are you talking about? He goes, the dot was deeper. I said, Tiger, it has paint in it. How would you know that? He goes, but I can see through the paint. It's translucent. So I have to get a pair of mics, stick them in there. And he's correct. Yeah. And through years of working with them, the face height, he was big in the face height. I'd roll the edge 
into the face. And if the face height was too tall, he said it was too tall and he felt like he had to forward press to hit the middle of the face. But he had this uncanny feel and look and visual. And I became not to ever second guess Tiger because he was always right. But I always made him, oh, you can't be that. And he was. <laughs> And he, uh, always his grip it had to be on one degree strong. So I set up some not that scientific ways to put his grip on one degree strong. But he always needed a certain way. He needed a certain look. And uh, I learned so much by working with him. Then began never second guess him because he has this weird feel. He sees it. He feels it. And I do believe after years of working with him and others, you have a relationship with your putter. It's kind of like you just have a feel. You know what it does, what it feels, what the sound downhill or is right to left. You have a relationship with a putter. Mm -hmm. And Tiger just had this unbelievable touch and feel and sound. And I learned so much with my time with him. Familiarity should never be underestimated. That symbiotic relationship, as you described, between the player, the human element, the tool that they're using to provide a set of instructions to a golf ball. You couldn't have said it any better than that. You've been amazing with your time. I've got just a couple of quick questions if you would uh, would entertain me here. Absolutely. If, if you were not the king of putting, the alter ego question, what would you be? I honestly would design furniture. I love furniture. I love in my studio, studio and my new gallery that I have here in Encinitas, I uh, got recycled I-beams. I love to create furniture. I have no idea why. It just excites me. You're ever, ever the artisan. Uh, how many patterns are in your own personal collection? Funny. Um, I kept all of my father's items. He loved golf clubs, persimmon woods, and putters. Like I said, Tommy Armour stuff. I have a few key putters, in my, but not many at all. Hmm. I gave the first My Girl putter to my wife and two daughters for Christmas. I give them My Girl putters because I always say My Girls. I'm going to dinner with My Girls. Trademark the name My Girl for golf products. And we do once a year a girls putter. And uh, My Girl, I give them. I didn't think they cared. They don't use them. They're, they're not avid golfers. I like to tell about them. Didn't think they listened or cared. <laughs> this year, I was late to bring the new My Girl. I didn't have it for Christmas. And they talked about it. The next day, they asked me, Dad, you give us a putter, a My Girl, every year. We have a collection. We have in the library. We're missing a putter. What's up? And I told them, I didn't think you cared. If I gave them or not, you don't use them. But I found that they love them and love to have a piece of what I did. But it was a little test not to give it to see if they really would know. <laughs> Beautiful. So we have the my girls for my girls, but I've kept a few key putters. But I'm telling you, I have less than 12 of my own. I love it. I love the collectors that I, we've. I, I wish I would have kept them all. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, they're better off in someone else's hands as collectibles or as gamers, right? Yeah, exactly. I should have, but I didn't. Yeah. I'm sorry for that. But, you know, I can't look back. But I, uh, I, some of the collections that people have that they send me photographs, and I just love that. I love to see what they do. What do you game yourself? Right now, because it changes. Yeah. Um, what I'm working on, I'm using the new, it's a concept putter that I was making when I was doing the Phantom X. So it's a prototype Phantom X-12 with the wings on the back and different shapes of the wings. I had to visually get everything going at the hole. I had to get the bend angle. I didn't want the bend going away and the wings going one way. I wanted the flow. So really, it's a prototype of an X-12 that the X-12 came out two weeks ago, really, into the marketplace. And I think about all this stuff so much and at night and grinding and engineering and tinkering and to see something come out and be loved and the sales on it have been fantastic. Brilliant. It makes me, it's the pat on the back that I need to keep going. Brilliant. And that's probably a great way to succinctly summarize our conversation. And I think I speak for everyone who knows of you, knows you, uh, knows of 
the quality of product. And uh, when I say thank you, thank you for bringing your dreams to life, your creations to life and allowing us to be inspired when we put one of your creations in our hands and feel confident the minute we stand over it. And I can't, uh, I can't share my appreciation enough for the bit over an hour and five minutes you spent with us on uh, on the conversation here today. Cameron, I'm glad we could hook up. Bringing back these old times inspire me. You are one of the best teachers in the game. I enjoy chatting with you, learning from you, but you have some students that are friends of mine and complete gentlemen. I'm looking at the uh, signature behind your head there. Indeed. <laughs> and, uh, we've become friends and we've played a bit together, but uh, you know, some of the guys I've met through the years, when I see him and see his name, simply said, he's a true gentleman. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy spending time with him. I've enjoyed spending time with you and thank you for all you do for the game. I appreciate it, Scotty. All the best and uh, hope to see you soon. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.